0: Good evening, thank you for the warm welcome, good to be back at Crescent and amongst uh, friends as well and uh, thank you Tony for your, your kind words. I wonder what it was you wanted to be when you grew up or maybe some of you feel like you still haven't grown up and you're still thinking about that but what did you want to be when you grew up, when you grew up maybe for anyone who's younger? Feel free to shout out. You didn't want to be anything. So ambitious people at Crescent Church, aren't they? There's, there's usually more common answers for those who are willing to actually have the confidence to shout out things like a nurse, maybe, or a doctor, or a firefighter, or maybe a policeman. We often play those games when we're growing up, uh, fulfilling those jobs. Maybe it's you wanted it to be a princess. Uh, maybe you wanted to be a, an astronaut. And very often, where you live, where you grew up, influences those kind of job, hopes what you want to be. Maybe if you grew up in the States, you'd want to be an American football player. If you grew up in Hawaii, maybe you want to be a surfer. And as you grow up, even from a young age, there are some jobs that are are easily recognizable and they're ones that maybe we want to do when we grow up. In the, in the first century, there was a, a job that was very easily recognized, and it was that of a shepherd, uh, and it's that job that Jesus himself claims as a job that he is going to do, and we're going to read about it in John chapter 10, but before we read God's word together, let's just take a moment to pray and ask for God to help us. Lord God, we thank you. Uh, For this opportunity we have to gather together and to open your word together. God, we pray that as we do so, uh, God, you would bring your word alive to us. God, your word is living and active. And God, it is a supernatural book. So God, we ask for your supernatural help by the Holy Spirit, God, to bring your word alive to us. God, help us now as we read it, as we seek to understand it, as we seek to apply it to our lives. And we ask us all in Christ's name, amen. So if you've got a Bible, either on your phone or the Bible, and if, you, if you're if you in a pew, there's also pew Bibles, I encourage you to look it up and to keep it open as we look at this text because we're going to be looking very closely at it. We're going to focus on John chapter 10, verses 11 through to 21. And this is Jesus Now we've already, if you've been here in the previous two Sunday nights, then we've already examined this passage in a bit of detail with uh, Brooke discussing the idea of hearing the voice of the shepherd and John last week discussing how Christ leads us to pasture. You know, when you study a passage, it's always good to remind yourself of the context that the passage finds itself in because it can really help us understand what's happening and why. And there's different types of context that you can apply and find out about the see and understand the passage. There's the literary context. What kind of writing is this? Because the Bible contains multiple different types of writing. There's poetry, there's narrative, there's law, there's wisdom, there's prophecy, there's letters, there's apocalyptic writing as well. And if you know the literary context, then that can help you understand the passage a bit better. There's historical context. When was this written? And this requires us to think about the time in which the text is located. What was the culture like at the time? What was happening? There's biblical context as well. Where does this fit in to the overall story of the Bible? What's happening when this was Written. There's the book context within itself. What's happening before and after in the passage that you're reading? An easy one to quickly figure out is the book. You can just simply look before or after the passage that you're reading. But well, who was it that Jesus was speaking to as he shared these words about his job title? Well, we only have to look back at John chapter 9. And we see in John chapter 9 that Jesus has healed a blind man and some of the Jewish leaders the Pharisees have come up and asked Jesus after Jesus has uh, explained something to him he says are, are we blind you can see that in chapter 9 verse 40 and at the end of this chapter we see there's division amongst the Jews because of what Jesus has said some think he's deemed oppressed others are being made to think So we can tell from this context that Jesus is speaking to a group of Pharisees amongst a group of Jews who are all listening in. And the response to Jesus' illustration is that of division. Some people are calling him mad, demon-possessed. Others can't make sense of what they're seeing, of what they're hearing. The Jewish leaders wanna bring charges against him. They're throwing people out of the temple if they give this guy any sort of credibility. In fact, if you read further back in chapter 8, verse 59, it tells us that they picked up stones to kill him. They want to kill him. So what is it that Jesus is teaching here that's so divisive? Why are they angry at him for saying he's a good shepherd? Well, let's look closely at the passage. You see, he actually repeats this claim twice. Can anyone see Call out the verses where he says about being the good shepherd. Where's the first reference? Verse eleven. Thank you. A second reference. Verse fourteen. Brian, he says it twice, very close together, isn't it? He's repeating it. He wants them to know, I am the good shepherd. This I am statement, it follows on using the same vivid imagery that Jesus is, is using to try and convey to the people who are listening exactly what he's all about. He says it again in verse 14, I am the good shepherd, but he says, "My sheep I know my sheep and my sheep know me. And it would be easy to think that this statement is simply that of someone who wants to convey their leadership of a group that they're a shepherd, they they lead a group of followers, but if we take a bit of time to think about it, and if we read it in the light of the Old Testament, then we begin to see a much greater picture and how it carries a significant bit of weight. As I said, if we want to understand a passage, it's good to look at the context, but it's also really good to look into other parts of Scripture to see if there's any other part of scripture that speaks into the passage that you're reading. Sometimes if you've got a a Bible, you might have footnotes, or they might be in the margin or in the bottom of the page, which will point you to other parts of scripture that can help you understand what you're reading. So we're gonna do that with these verses and uh, and unpack what Jesus is saying when he says, I am the good shepherd. In an inductive Bible study, we call that cross-referencing. The first thing that we're gonna note is when we see earlier on in John 10, Jesus says, I am the door. He uses a a particular phrase. In the original language, it's ego am I? And it's only used in a few other places. But the first place that it's mentioned in the Bible is Exodus chapter three, verse 14. And we all know what happened there, don't we? No, I appreciate your honesty because you've shaken your head. Everyone else is like, "Mm -hmm. (laughs) mm-hmm, don't ask me. In Exodus three, you'll know, if you've grown up in church or you've been around church, for you will know the story, maybe just not the reference. God commissions Moses from the burning bush to go speak with Pharaoh and demand that he let his people go from slavery. And when Moses asks, what is God's name? So that when people ask me, who sent me to do this? God replies and says, I am who I am. And that moment of, of revelation is a divine moment. This is the eternal sovereign God of the universe, unchanging, glorious, and he's, he's telling Moses who he is. And here in John chapter 10, Jesus takes that name and he applies it to himself. In other words, he says, I am who I am. Now, when you think about it like that, it's no surprise then that the Jewish leaders heard this. They knew the Old Testament so well that they immediately were offended and they wanted to kill him because Jesus was saying here, I am God. In other words, everything that God is, Jesus is. He is God incarnate, the God of heaven and earth in human form. So let's then think about this picture because Jesus as God is saying, I am the good shepherd. Well, the theme of shepherding runs through the Old Testament. As early as Genesis 4, when we read that Abel was a shepherd who tended the flocks. And later in Exodus 3, Moses is shepherding a flock when God speaks to him from the burning bush. Later in Numbers 27, Moses asks God to appoint a shepherd over Israel. And However, this is is God appointing a man to act as a shepherd for God's people. He's not the shepherd. If we were to look at some cross-references in the Old Testament, it becomes clear who the real shepherd is. God himself. Ezekiel 34, verse 15. Here's a cross-reference for you. It says, God speaks and says this, I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. God is the definitive shepherd and he seeks to look after the flock by caring for them, leading them and providing for them. If you read through the Psalms, you see it there as well. It refers to God regularly as the shepherd of Israel. Here's some references Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Psalm 77, you led your people like a flock. Psalm 80, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. So, did Jesus act like a shepherd? when he walked on earth. It describes Jesus' interaction. If we read the New Testament, as we read the Gospels, and we see how he interacted with people and how he viewed people, we see that he did act like a shepherd. In Matthew 9, verse 36, it says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were like, harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus saw their condition, he saw their need, and he saw the cause of it. Two verses later, he he tells his disciples to pray to God that he will send leaders, send out his disciples to the lost sheep of Israel. This idea of being a shepherd was very real in Christ's mind as he spoke to his followers. But by claiming he was the good shepherd, it was more than a statement about his leadership. It was more than a statement just about his compassion, which are obvious from the verses that we've looked at. But he's claiming to be the shepherd. He's proclaiming to be God incarnate. He's identifying himself to the people who are listening. And remember, these are Jews who knew the Old Testament, who knew scripture and knew what Jesus was saying, that he himself was the shepherd of Israel. It was blasphemy to those who heard it which is why later in verse 33 they decide they're going to stone him. They've had enough of Jesus claiming to be God and taking these claims and applying them to himself. Well, Jesus went further. He didn't say he was not only the shepherd of Israel, but he also claimed to be the good shepherd. And why is this important for us? Well, here Jesus is explaining that the shepherds who have been leading God's people, those who have been appointed to lead God's people, haven't done a very good job of it. To understand this, we need to jump back into the Old Testament. You'll see we're, we're, we're calling upon the Old Testament a lot, aren't we? See, but we're not just a New Testament church. We're a Old Testament church, old and new. The whole Bible speaks... And to understand the New Testament, we need to understand the Old Testament. So we're going back to the Old Testament again to see how the people of Israel were being described as a flock. But those who led them, they were also described as shepherds, but they weren't doing a great job. In fact, they were doing a horrendous job at times of leading and caring for God's people. In Jeremiah 23, this is God's judgment. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. You see, Israel had wanted a leader, they had wanted a shepherd, not just God as their shepherd, They wanted someone that they could see and hear and listen to and follow. And God had answered their call. He had given them kings, but most of them really failed to deliver. They failed to provide for the people. They failed to lead them well. And it didn't get any better after they returned from exile and came back to rebuild their country. In fact, even as we get to the New Testament, those who were now shepherding God's people they were doing a, a wicked job. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 23. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. You ever heard that phrase before? Where someone preaches, but they don't practice what they preach? It's a terrible hypocrisy, isn't it? They, that's the Pharisees, tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds just to be seen by others. All this holy show, it's just for show. It's just a fake. It's piety. It's false. Their hearts themselves are wicked and twisted. And many times Jesus actually says, woe to you scribes and Pharisees because you're hypocrites. You are hypocrites. The shepherds of God's people were abusing the positions of responsibility that they had been given. They were actually making things harder for the people instead of helping them and encouraging them. They were discouraging them. That actually led people away from the Lord. But here is someone who claims to be a good shepherd, not a hypocrite. Someone who does practice what they preach. This isn't someone who's out for personal gain. This is not someone who is going to scatter and leave the sheep. This is going to be someone who gathers together someone who cares for and provides for the sheep. This is a good shepherd. When you read a passage, if there's something repeated in the passage, it's usually important. It's important for us as we read it. We sometimes, in an inductive study, we call that a key word or a key phrase because it can unlock the meaning of a passage to help us understand what it's all about. So I want you to look down at the text if you have it open and and as you look through some of those verses from verse 11 onward, is there any phrase or words that are repeated more than once? Someone over here? Lay down my life. Brilliant. Thank you so much. That phrase, do we see that phrase or something like that phrase repeated anywhere else in these verses? Call out the verse reference if you see it. Verse 17, the last part of verse 17. Thank you, you whoever pointed out, I lay down my life great. Any other reference? Tony said I can take as long as I want, so I'm here for verse 18. Thank you. We see it in verse 18. No one takes it from me, but I lay it, that's his life, down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. We've seen it, it's it's said more than once, it's said in verse 11, verse 15, verse 17, verse 18, this good shepherd is going to lay down his life for his sheep. Now, you might find that unusual. That sounds like an unusual thing to say, doesn't it? Why? Well, firstly, because shepherds care for sheep, they look after their sheep sheep were farmed for wool for milk but a shepherd would not normally have to die for his sheep though of course they may in the course of their job fulfilling their responsibilities they might have to risk injury or risk their life for them maybe climbing over a ravine or fighting off a wolf or something like that maybe If you know a bit more in the Old Testament, you can think of the story of David in 1 Samuel 17, where David tells Saul of times when he he risked his own life to protect the sheep under his care by fighting off lions and bears. Uh, David risked his life for the sheep he cared for, but, but typically, shepherds didn't normally lay down their lives for the sheep. But the good shepherd he will lay down his life for the sheep. Why? Why would the good shepherd do this? Well, sheep were raised for wool, for milk, but they were also reared for sacrifice. They were the Old Testament means of obtaining forgiveness from God. Shepherds didn't die for sheep. Sheep died for shepherds. Sheep died for anyone who needed forgiveness. And yet here Jesus says he is going to die for the sheep. And we know where this is leading, where it's going, because Jesus is heading to Jerusalem to go to the cross. Luke 9 tells us when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He he was determined to do what he had come to do, which was to lay down his life. Sheep weren't they were the sacrifice, it wasn't to be the shepherd. But here Jesus is flipping this idea on its head because this good shepherd is actually going to become a sacrificial lamb. There's a guy in the New Testament called John the Baptist, and the very first day he sees Jesus, this is what he says Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This wasn't just going to be a shepherd, this was also going to be a lamb. At the end of the Bible, we see this mentioned again in Revelation chapter 7. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were crying out with a loud voice Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In you look at verse 17 in Revelation, it says this, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. There's that same, uh, what would be a fancy word for it, but like a juxtaposition where these two pictures are coming together, both a shepherd and a lamb in the one person of Jesus Christ. The good shepherd was gonna become a sacrificial lamb. He was going to lay down his life. But this would not be the end of the story because this lamb would take up his life again. I want you to look down at John chapter 10, 17 to 18 and see if there's another phrase that you see in the text repeated. I'll give you a clue. It's tied in closely with this idea of laying down my life. Take it up again, thank you. Jesus says I may take it up again or I have authority to take it up again in verse 18. See, this voluntary death was gonna be followed by a victorious resurrection. And it was all both the laying down of his life and the taking up of his life again was all done willingly and by choice even though the Jewish authorities wanted to kill him, even though ultimately it would be the Romans who would crucify him, Jesus was doing this all willingly. And he would take up his life again because he had the authority to do so. Because why? Because as we know, he is God. Jesus could have stopped this at any time. He could have called down 10,000 angels if he wanted to. This is the one who we read about stilled the sea. This is the one who fed thousands with just some bread and fish. The one who healed and restored others. So, uh, the one who raised others to life. Jesus had the power to change the situation and yet he chose not to. He laid down his life. Everything was done in accordance with his will. Even at his very death, we read, He gave up his spirit, John 19, verse 30. You know, if anything, this demonstrates to us so clearly that he is the good shepherd, that he would lay down his life for us. But why is that necessary? Why was that necessary? Why did Jesus have to lay down his life? You see, the Bible is very clear. God created mankind, but mankind broke the relationship that we have with God by rebelling against him. And throughout the Old Testament, people would make regular sacrifices to pay for the sins that they committed against God. And that that sin, our, our rebellion against God, choosing to do our own thing rather than choosing to do his thing, choosing to live apart from him under our authority instead of under his, is so serious that it requires a death to pay for it. Because God is perfect and just. And sin is so awful. In fact, Romans 6 verse 23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. But the thing is, no amount of sheep could ever pay for the sins of man. It had to be a person who would pay. But who here has never sinned? Who here has never done anything wrong? All of us at some stage or another with a bit of inward reflection can point to a time when we've done at least one thing that we know wasn't right. So who on earth could be good enough to be our representative? The good shepherd. The good shepherd. Well, what's the application of all this? What does this mean for us as we come to close? Because if you read something and you understand it a bit better, if you're not thinking about how it applies to you right now, then this is just theology, isn't it? And we're not in the business of theology. We're in applied theology. We want to apply this to our lives. Well, I think the first thing that we learn and the first truth that we can take away and encourage our own hearts with is this, that salvation belongs to the Lord. It's his initiative. It's not ours. It's all his doing. Jesus did this willingly. We didn't do anything to earn it or to influence it. Maybe you're here this evening and you fall into that trap regularly of trying to earn it, trying to curry some favor with God and you don't have to. It's already been bought for you. No matter what you've done, whatever sin you've committed, the price has been paid. Your salvation does not depend on you being here tonight. It doesn't depend on you reading the whole Bible. It doesn't depend on you tithing. It doesn't depend on you living a sinless life. All these things are good, but your salvation doesn't depend on it. It all depends on whether or not you believe in this claim that Jesus laid down his life you. John three sixteen to 17 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes will have life. Jesus laid down his life for you and for me. I think we can be filled with praise and thankfulness, can't we, that we had a, a shepherd who was willing to take our place? We should be a thankful people, shouldn't we? hmm, I heard one, mm hmm, <laughs> over here. We should be filled with thanksgiving. We should be filled with praise for what has been done for us. This is an amazing truth. We should be ones who want to sing praise to God for the salvation that's been brought to us through no merit of our own, through the good shepherd. The Apostle Paul, he wrote in 2 Corinthians, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. This is a gift. I hope you're filled with thanksgiving for it. Another thing that we can remind ourselves of this as we look at this passage is that the good shepherd is alive today. Yes, he laid down his life, but he took it up again. He now lives. And if he now lives, then he's still in the business of speaking, of leading, of caring, of providing for his flock. The risen lamb is our living shepherd. This is the one who leads us in the pasture now. The one who leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. The one who still speaks and we hear him through his word. We're also not alone. We've not been left to fend for ourselves because our savior lives and he's gonna lead us home Psalm 23 explains that goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that we're immune to the troubles and difficulties of this life, but the Good Shepherd will lead us, He will sustain us. Finally, the Good Shepherd is still in the business of seeking the lost. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says that all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We were all lost at one stage. We've all done our own thing, but Christ sought us out. The parable in Matthew 10 shows us a Savior who goes looking for the lost sheep. This is the shepherd we have. This is the good shepherd. This is the shepherd who seeks us out. Sure, this is what makes Christianity different to other faiths a God, who rather than wait for us to seek him, seeks us. Maybe you're here this evening and maybe you still feel lost. Maybe you feel like you haven't yet been found. Well, the good shepherd is looking for you. He's calling to you this evening. And if you hear his voice, don't turn away, but, but go follow the good shepherd. Let's take a moment to pray before I invite the band up to lead us in a couple of songs. Lord God, we want to thank you uh, that your son, the Lord Jesus, is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. God, we thank you that he laid down his life for me, for each of us, and God, that that death is is sufficient for everyone. That sacrifice is sufficient for everyone. But God, it's only efficient for those who believe. God, we pray for anyone here this evening who's been touched by this picture of Christ as the Good Shepherd. God, in your grace and in your mercy, would you call to them? God, and in your mercy would you save them? God, for those who are already part of your flock, God, would you take your word and would you bind it up in our hearts? And God, would you encourage us this evening? God, would you cause us to reflect more on this this picture and on the truths that we have examined in your word? even over the course of this week, would you bring them to mind? God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for how you speak. And God, we commit ourselves into your care as a good shepherd. In Christ's name we pray, amen.